Matthew 27, if you would find verse 45. And as you're turning there, let me just say by way of some introduction. I don't think that in the last 12 years of my preaching, have I come across such a text like this that has so uh, caused me to be overcome with the meaning and the understanding of the text. Uh, I have preached some hundreds of times, perhaps thousands, not sure. Um, but this, this is uh, remarkable, which is why uh, I'm asking us to uh, partake in this first service uh, and then a second because there is just so much for us to consider uh, here. And I trust that it will have the same effect it has had on me all night long um, as we consider it. Matthew chapter 27 Beginning in verse 45, the Bible says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. It is essential, church, this morning, absolutely critical that we understand the background, the context and the time markers surrounding the death of Jesus Christ. It's crucial to an interpretation, a correct interpretation of the scriptures and I trust today you'll see why those things are so, so important. By way of introduction for our text this morning, I want to present for a few moments at the very beginning here the events that have taken place. Now, I do this quite often when we get to our communion time. I know that we go through some of the events that have already occurred. But I'm going to have a specific focus uh, this morning and you'll see what it is in a moment. I want to give you the events of Thursday. Right now in our text, the Lord Jesus is on the cross. It's Friday. Right now it is between the sixth and the ninth hour, as we just read. I want to give you the events of the day before. Peter and John, they had been delegated the task of organizing the Passover lamb and acquiring the upper room for the disciples that evening. An exciting time. Passover was always exciting in the Jewish calendar. The Bible says once the evening had come, note that time marker, the evening. Jesus and the disciples were assembled in the upper room and they were partaking of the cedar, the Passover meal. You recall we had something similar not too long ago that taught us what that looked like. That's what they were doing. During the meal, sometime during that meal, the Lord Jesus, when comparing all of the different gospel accounts, this is what we find, the Lord Jesus lays aside his garments, takes a towel and a basin filled with water and begins to wash the disciples' feet. I hope as I say this, your mind goes where it needs to, to imagine the picture. We're in the middle of eating this supper, this Passover, and the Lord Jesus in the middle begins to wash the disciples' feet. And something that is astounding that I'm not going to park on because I don't have time, including Judas Iscariot, including the one who he knows full well in just a few moments is going to leave. The Lord Jesus washes his feet. While they were still eating, Jesus takes the bread and the wine and he makes a striking statement that we're going to look at a little bit later. He says, this is my body which is given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then after telling the disciples that there is a traitor in their midst, Jesus identifies Judas who in turn leaves and enters into, the Bible says, the night. Another time marker. 
the night. John 13 tells us that. After Judas's departure, the group sing a hymn, probably from Psalms, very likely. The portion that was normally assigned to the cedar meal. And they go out to the Mount of Olives where Peter is informed that shortly he will deny the Lord three times. The disciples, having left the upper room with the Lord Jesus, travel around about 2.5 kilometres by foot from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord Jesus says, please watch and pray. Remember? Remember the, the account? Jesus goes a little bit further and takes Peter, James and John and asks them to pray. And then he goes a little bit further again and he begins to pray alone in anguish in the garden. And when you compare all the accounts of the Gospels, you find that on three occasions the Lord Jesus comes to his disciples and he finds them asleep. We have a very interesting time stamp again. Jesus says to Peter when he comes the first time, could you not watch with me for one hour? This occurs two more times. On three separate occasions for approximately an hour each, we presume, leaves the time stamp right now to be about 12 a.m. Friday morning. We started Cedar somewhere after sunset, let's say 6 p.m. For three hours or so, the Passover meal and all of those situations occur. They go out to the garden and for somewhat like three hours, the Lord Jesus agonises in prayer and the disciples fall asleep on three occasions. The events of Thursday. Now it's Friday morning, first thing, probably somewhere about midnight. And as the Lord rebukes the disciples for the last time for not praying as they ought, Judas approaches in the garden. Accompanied by a great crowd, which the Bible says was also a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests who were armed with swords and clubs. The Bible tells us that Judas kisses the Lord Jesus to signal who they should seize. I don't know if you've ever given that much thought. Three and a half years this man was with him. Having kissed the Lord Jesus, the soldiers immediately seized the Lord Jesus and led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, who had already assembled the scribes and the elders. It is at Caiaphas's house that Jesus is falsely accused. He's spat on, he's blindfolded and struck, and many blows were given to him by the guards, Mark 14 tells us. And it was here that Peter denied the Lord on three separate occasions. Another very interesting time stamp, which we may have never thought about, the rooster crows suggesting that it's just a little while before dawn. The Bible tells us that when day came, the elders took Jesus to their council. He'd been with them probably for some five or so hours from 12.30 or so right through until 5.30 or even 6, depending on sunrise at that time. The Bible tells us that it was early morning when they led Jesus to the governor's headquarters. That's the governor Pontius Pilate. When you go and have a look at a Roman's job in that day, this is what you find. The working day for a Roman began at daylight and it was necessary to bring Jesus to Pilate as early as possible to ensure that a sentence was carried out before there was no objection raised by his many followers. Don't forget Jesus is popular. Why was it so early in the morning? Why did they do it at the break of dawn? Well, as soon as the Roman guards and, and Governor uh, Pontius Pilate was uh, working, which was at daybreak, they took him to him in order that he would be sentenced immediately because there is a very good chance that when the crowds got involved who were following Jesus, they would say, don't do that. Having questioned the Lord Jesus privately and finding no fault. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod because he hears he is a Galilean and it's therefore Herod's jurisdiction. So Jesus, accompanied by soldiers and the chief priests and scribes, walked to Herod's palace, which is only about 400 metres from where the Lord Jesus was kept in front of Pontius Pilate. 
We read that in Herod's presence, Jesus is vehemently accused and arrayed in royal clothing as a sign of mockery. Luke 23. After Herod had scrutinized the Lord Jesus, he sends him back to Pilate's abode. And it is at this point in the story that Barabbas is set free instead of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. An insurrectionist, a murderer, a criminal. Set free. What a picture. It's at this point that Pilate whips the Lord Jesus with the cat of nine tails. It's at this point that the soldiers take that Middle Eastern set of thorns and begin to mould it together in order to make a crown and there they thrust it upon his forehead and strike it so that the blood would gush out and he is beaten. Finally, after great efforts to set him free, Pilate says, he's yours. Go, go and crucify him. They needed, they needed his approval. It was against the law for them to put to death a man. And so they required Pilate and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And Pilate finally gave in and said, go do what you need to. John Mark in the Gospel of Mark records an incredible an incredibly important time marker. The Bible says in Mark 15:25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. In the Jewish calendar, this means 9 a.m. The day begins at 6. At the third hour, they crucified him. Everything from Caiaphas's house all the way to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate and up to Mount Golgotha occurred in a three hour time frame. Just to put it into the picture. Very important time marker. And immediately having been crucified, the Lord Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we've looked at that. The word of forgiveness. Very early on, probably just after 9 a.m., the Lord Jesus said this on the Friday. And then somewhere between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. noon, the Lord Jesus interacts with the repentant thief next to him and says to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we've looked at that, the word of salvation. And then sometime after the thief's salvation and yet still before midday, and I'll explain why in just a moment, Jesus sees his mother and John the disciple he loves and his heart is filled with love and overcome at the thought of his mother being lonely, having already lost Joseph, his father, very likely. We looked at that last time. And he says to Mary, pointing to John, woman, behold your son. He says to John, behold your mother. And you recall... We looked at the word of tenderness. It is now the sixth hour. That's noon. That's 12 p.m. on Friday. The Son of God on the cross. Our next major event takes place here and a mysterious darkness comes over all the land and it lasts for three Hours from the sixth hour, the Bible says, to the ninth hour, as recorded in three separate Gospels. And they all say exactly the same thing. A mysterious darkness appears. An interesting side note, again, by way of introduction. 3 p.m. The ninth hour was the time of the daily sacrifice in Jerusalem. And that, I suggest to you, is right on when the Lord Jesus gave up the ghost. Just after that. Interesting thought. Let me re-emphasize this morning the importance of context and the time stamps given in the four Gospels because we find that from approximately 9 p.m. the night before, Thursday, that I've just given you some data on, the 9 p.m. the night before until 12 p.m. on the Friday, those hours there, the Son of God has been in great anguish. Constant anguish. He suffered physical assaults, satanic and spiritual assaults. But let me say this and please hear this now. The worst is yet to come. We pick up the narrative here at 12pm, the sixth hour. 
as we consider this, the final words of a faithful saviour, part four. Heavenly Father, this uh, is an enormous task and I feel so much the weight of it this morning and I pray you would cause us to have great attention for uh, these moments together that we would glean from this passage incredible truth that would be life-changing, not because of anything that we see in it, but because you reveal to us some truth from your word that causes us to have such a greater understanding of all that occurred on that day, all that was heaped upon the Son of God for us. Now, Lord, we don't want this to be about anybody else but Jesus Christ. Help us to focus and have attention for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 45 of Matthew 27 is our text along with verse 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? I want you to note a number of things this morning and they're going to continue right through to our second service. The first point I want you to note, the major point I want you to note is the mystery of the darkness. The mystery of the darkness. The inclusion of this mysterious event has bothered me, I'll be honest, for as long as I have been a Christian. I have never come to understand or comprehend what is going on in this scene here. It's, it's caused me no end of angst over many years, I confess this morning. Why from 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. was the land covered in darkness? That's been a question for years. Does this have special significance? Or is it just an event that we should note without any real implications Why is it mentioned in three of the four gospel accounts? And why is it exactly the same time? Why is it specific? What does it mean? The mystery of the darkness. Those of you who are familiar with me know that there's going to be sub-points, so get ready for them. This is sub-point number one. I want you to note the reality of the darkness. So we're looking at the mystery of the darkness. This is point number one with a sub point being the reality of the darkness. Now, we Bible believing Christians need no more proof than that of scriptures, I hope. It's there. It's there. We don't need proof any more than that because the Bible is God's word. But there could be those in our midst here who perhaps don't subscribe to a literal account of the scripture in Matthew 27:45 and in Mark 15:33 and in Luke 23:44. So, for your benefit, let me include just a couple of extra biblical reports. Origen, a man in church history, quotes a Roman historian who says this. There was an earthquake and that the rocks were split asunder, and the tombs opened, and the veil of the temple rent in twain from top to bottom, and that darkness prevailed in the daytime, the sun failing to give light. That is a secular historical account of that time, given by Origen. But then we notice, you say, well, Origen, he was a church father, that's not fair. Okay, fair enough, let's give you another one. Julius Africanus, imagine calling your child that. Julius Africanus, in 221 AD as the emperor, he found an excerpt written by Thallus, a Mediterranean historian from 51 AD, and this is what that little excerpt said. On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. We could cite, we don't have time, but we could cite Tertullian, And even a report from Pilate, Governor Pontius Pilate, writing to the Emperor Tiberius about the reality of the darkness on the day of Christ's crucifixion. This is not fable, this is not myth, this really happened. This is not a metaphor, this is not, well, he meant something else by it. This is a literal account of something that occurred physically in the world and over the whole land. By the way, let me say this. The Bible word in the Greek suggests the whole land, not the region. 
So some people would say it's just over that area. That's not what we say. And also those people who were writing were not all in Jerusalem at the time when they made those pronouncements. Interesting thought. The reality of the darkness. Second sub point. I want you to see here. Possible explanations for this darkness. I just want to give you a quick summary of my time of study and what the possible explanations could be for this mysterious darkness that occurred. And may I say, there have been many more than this. But here are the top four, if I may. Some would say, the darkness was Satan's forces in full array against the Lamb of God upon the cross. Some would even go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 where the Bible says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Additionally, Jesus had said, The night before Thursday night, when they had come to him with clubs and swords. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this your hour and the power of darkness. Luke 22, 53. So there is a large proportion of commentators who would say the darkness was symbolic of Satan's army coming together in order to inflict on the Lord Jesus great pain great suffering and in full array against him. That is an option. The second option. The darkness was a testimony to those present at the cross. Some commentators would say crucifixion was not uncommon. You would see crucifixion on the hills of Jerusalem and outside often. Criminals were regularly uh, killed on those hills. But God decided in order to have a greater witness to those present. This was not an ordinary crucifixion, so he did something supernatural. So that's the idea. And that someone like the centurion or the thief on the cross and others would be bear testimony to this great darkness. That is another possibility. The darkness was a testimony to those present at the cross. Thirdly, the darkness appeared because the light of the world was fading. This is a popular thought. The assertion is common. Because this is what a lot of logical thinkers come to the uh, the end result of because Christ claimed to be the light of the world, didn't he? I am the light of the world. But the light of the world was presently on a cross and that light was diminishing, so to speak. And so many would say, John 9, 5, I'm the light of the world and the light was now turning to darkness. The fourth and most popular And the one I am most familiar with is this. The darkness came as a result of God the Father turning his back on his son. Now, I'm 99% sure that nearly everybody in this room will have heard this part before. This is by far the most popular position held to. And one that I have always been told and I have always believed without question. Until yesterday. This explanation is based on the fact that God the Father cannot look upon his Son whilst he bears the sins of the world. We understand that. The concept there is that God the Father is of two, uh, his eyes are of, uh, too pure, he cannot look on evil. Habakkuk tells us, and that's a verse often used, therefore he could not look upon his Son and turned his back, and therefore when he turned his back, the darkness became a reality. It's a popular thought. However, There's a major flaw in this interpretation. And it's based upon this. The flaw, mainly, is the fact that we are saying God cannot look upon sin. I've always believed that. I've been guilty of teaching that for many years. But the text in Habakkuk, which is the only reference point, does not say that at all. What the text in Habakkuk says when he says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, does not mean that God is incapable of observing sin, but that he can never approve of sin. You say, that's pretty big. You're you're going against every piece of orthodoxy that I've ever heard, every piece of traditionalism, every type of preaching. You are saying, here is an example for you and there's more if you'd like to see me afterwards. There are plenty here because I knew some of you might want to do that. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 is a classic example where the Lord saw the wickedness on the earth and did something about it. He looked at the world and the earth and he noted the wickedness and then made way for a great punishment by the way of the flood. 
And the Lord, Lord specifically looked at that point. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 3 to 8, Peter says, after the Lord has done an incredible miracle, depart from me, I am a sinful man. We have a real problem if we begin to say that God cannot look upon sin in the, the, the truest sense of noting it and seeing it and understanding it. If we say that he cannot, then how on earth can God abide in a sinner? You say, well, the Lord Jesus has changed everything. That's true, but we have no right ever to say that God cannot look upon sin. Now, that might be revolutionary for some of you. It was revolutionary for me because I believed it all the way home until I studied it. There's an array of Bible references that clearly demonstrate that God not only can, but must look at sin and the sinner. He must. I don't have time to give you more on that. Come see me afterwards if you'd like some more about that. Possible explanations for the darkness. I gave you four. Now, let me give you another sub point. Defining darkness biblically. Defining darkness biblically. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will have come across passages that refer to light and darkness. A thorough study of this topic reveals that the majority, given the majority of usages in the Bible, equate darkness with evil, sin and Satan. No question, we agree with that. Often the metaphor is they walk in darkness, they are darkness, their their deeds are evil, etc, etc. Darkness is very often acquainted with all things that are not from God. Just like light is often symbolic of God and life and truth. Some examples for you. Matthew 8.12, we talk about the outer darkness. The Lord Jesus says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly that is not a good place, outer darkness. John 3.19, the Bible says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Clearly we're dealing here with darkness as evil deeds. You see the picture? Jesus dispels darkness in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see that darkness is symbolic of judgment. Acts 2 and verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. No doubt that darkness is very often in relationship to sin and evil and wickedness And satanic forces. And there's more. You you read the book of Jude. There's many instances in that chapter of darkness relating to evil. Please hear this next statement. One of the dangers that Christians face when comparing scripture with scripture is to select a metaphor or a historical event And create an overarching truth which should be applied in every instance. Did you all get that? What I mean by that is the danger as you read the Bible when you compare scripture with scripture, which is a good thing to do. But the danger there is that just because there is darkness over here, we say, well, darkness is evil here. Therefore, darkness must be evil all the way along. You see the picture? A classic example that a friend of mine uses all the time is he talks about goats in the Bible. Some of you might know who this is. This individual, he talks about goats and we know the familiar passage in Matthew 25, 33 where the Lord Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, right? We remember that passage. And we know that the goats are those who are not believers in that text. Those are not those who are uh, in a relationship with the shepherd. But here's what we do. We say goats are evil. Goats are always a picture of sin and evil. There's a real problem with that. You know why? Because in Leviticus chapter 16, we have two goats on the Day of Atonement and it's a scapegoat. We get to the New Testament and we find that Jesus Christ is our scapegoat. So we've got a real problem when we start making overarching comments like that and say, well, here's an example. That must be the same over here. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And so it's very important that we define darkness biblically. In some instances, it relates to evil, sin, wickedness. But in others, it has a very different meaning. Next sub point. Darkness can represent the presence of God. Please note this, because this is the turning point. This is the pivot. 
Darkness can represent the presence of God. Now, I confess, it does not seem to make sense. It doesn't seem in my mind, surely how could God be in any way related to darkness? Doesn't First John tell us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all? How is that possible? Well, we find that many times in history, God has revealed himself in darkness, smoke and thick clouds, and they are all synonyms. Even though the very nature of God is light, 1 John 1, 5, this does not denote that he cannot express himself in the darkness. Here's what I want to do for a few moments. Turn with me please to Second Samuel. We're going to look up a few texts here before we finish this first message. And it's just starting to get exciting, so don't go anywhere. Okay, strap on your seatbelts because this is going to be an interesting ride over the next few minutes. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse number 1, let me read for you this passage of scripture. 2 Samuel 22, I beg your pardon, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Here's the picture. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, writes a song to the Lord and this is what he says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My saviour, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me and the snares of death confronted me. Number seven, uh, in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Verse eight, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Verse 10. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. Verse 12. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. I want you to note verse 10 and verse 12. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick clouds, thick darkness was under his feet. Verse 12, he made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Clearly, darkness in this context cannot be evil. We see that it's related to our great and grand and holy God. After being delivered from his enemies, David offered praise to the Lord. And he notes the darkness as it surrounds God. I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings, please. Just to give us a few instances to help us understand where I'm heading in just a few moments. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 12. Context here, take the time to read it yourself. But King Solomon is performing a major sacrifice before all the people and the Ark of the Covenant. And notice how he describes the presence of God in 1 Kings chapter 8. And verse 12, one solitary verse. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he will dwell in thick darkness. Isn't that a revolutionary thought? Doesn't that stretch your mind a little bit? This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And that was certainly what happened to me at about eight o'clock last night when I began to study this darkness and I began to think, Wait a second, what is happening here? This does not fit with my spiritual and biblical context of how God operates. We don't have time, but let me give you another one for you to write down. Psalm 97 and verse 2. The psalmist says this, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, God. Interestingly, another uh, instance of this in is Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is confronted with a vision of Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, we find in the New Testament. And in that passage in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, the house was filled with smoke or darkness, the very presence of God on the throne. And here we have a synonym of darkness, the house was filled with smoke. And there are many, many others. We won't take the time now. Here's what I want you to note. Darkness can represent the presence of God. I hope that's sufficient for you to see at least that much. 
And there's more. Next sub point. And this, I know, I know I'm probably starting to get a bit excited, but let me tell you, this one here is just critical. Darkness accompanied the covenants of God. Note that. Darkness accompanied the covenants of God. We must see and understand this. Genesis chapter 15, please turn with me to Genesis 15. If you know your Bibles at all, you'll know that in Genesis 15, we are dealing with the Abrahamic covenant. And again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to give you all the ins and outs of what the Abrahamic covenant is, but suffice to say, it was a covenant instigated, installed, ratified by God, and Abraham had nothing to do with it in the sense of the ratification of this covenant in Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to take the time to read this chapter for us. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Pause. God had promised something long ago. Nothing's happened. I'm wondering what's going on. That's a reasonable request from a human perspective. Verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. I'd love to pause, but I'm not going to, just making a little note there. Please pause yourself and have a think about what that meant. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, by the way, there's a goat, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, note this, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and you can read the rest of the text there. I want you to note something. In the original language, when we come here to verse number 11, verse number 12 rather, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him. This is the very presence of God coming down to Abram and then in a few moments will pass through those sacrifices as a symbol of a covenant that God will keep. The position was this, these animals have been rent in twain and if I break my covenant, may the same be done to me, God says. That's how you perform the covenant between two people. But normally both people would walk through the centre of that. Normally, God and Abram would walk through that to signify that neither would break the covenant, but it was only a covenant on God's terms. And God comes down in thick darkness and it's horrible and terrible and terrifying because the presence of God is that, and you'll see that in just a moment. And here, a covenant is established with Abraham and this smoke, this darkness is the presence of God. You say, I'm not convinced. Good, I've got another one. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. I'm starting to learn to not apologize in asking you to turn to places because this is God's word and there is no apology. So I'm not apologizing. I'm just making that clear as we turn. Exodus chapter 19. And I want to read the first nine verses and then we'll turn one other place. Israel's at Mount Sinai here. Exodus 19, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, 
On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What a great verse. Moving on. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured possession, my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. You say, oh, well, that just talks about a thick cloud. What's your point? Let's go to Deuteronomy, please. And chapter four, for the exact same incident, but from a slightly different perspective. Same author, but a little bit more information given here in Deuteronomy chapter four. Verse 11, if you'd find your place. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you this covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Turn over one page. Chapter 5. And find verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain of the midst, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more and he wrote them on tablets of stone and gave them to me. Verse 23. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. What's happening? The Mosaic Covenant is being established and ratified there on Mount Sinai and the very presence of Almighty God is there in the thick darkness, in the cloud, in the smoke and it is symbolic, not just symbolic, literal of his presence. A careful note as we move on. Not every covenant necessarily denotes, like we said before, making an overarching truth. Not every covenant in the scripture has the Lord come down in darkness as a symbol. That's not true because the Noahic covenant never had that. But we note that two major covenants do. The Abrahamic and now the Mosaic. We want to fast forward time for just a moment here. And the next sub point, and we'll finish shortly, but I need to cover this off before we can get to the second part after our little break. The next part is I've called a new covenant revealed. For the sake of time, I won't have you turn there, but make a note of this. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31 to 34. This is a prophecy given by God to Jeremiah to speak out to the people 600 years. Another time note, 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice this. This is the new one. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31. Okay, We have the Abrahamic, the Mosaic and a new covenant now in Jeremiah 31 mentioned. 
This one, this new covenant is going to change everything, isn't it? You're a Jew, think about that. This is going to change. The law of God in my hearts, I'm his people in a real sense and my sins are gone. Not just covered, but gone. Turn with me to Luke, please. Luke 22. We're almost there. We're almost there. You're doing very well to stay with me for this long. Luke 22, find with me verse 19. We're in the upper room. We've already talked about it somewhat. Luke 22, verse 19. And he, Jesus, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That would have been an interesting thought for the disciples, though they wouldn't have known what it meant. But notice the next verse. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that upper room. You know why? There must have been gasps. 600 years we've been waiting for this new covenant and every Jew knew it. Don't for a moment think just because we're Christianized that we, we hear about Jeremiah 31 and we have an idea a little bit. Every Jew memorized it. They knew the new covenant is coming one day and we can't wait and we sacrifice daily because one day it's going to be done. This is coming, this new covenant. And in the upper room, the Lord Jesus makes a striking statement. The most incredible statement of his entire ministry, I suggest, is right here when he says to his disciples in the upper room, this, this, is the new covenant. This is what you've been waiting for. What a moment. What a moment in Jewish history. These men knew exactly what Jesus had said. Don't think for a moment these ignorant fishermen had no idea. They knew exactly what Jesus had said. The Messiah The Son of God, the one Jesus had said, you are the one to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the new covenant and it's here. The last thing I want you to note before we take a break, the sub-point is this. That was the new covenant revealed. Now, the new covenant ratified. The new covenant ratified. Jesus had just said the pouring out of Christ's blood as the sacrificial lamb, the reality that had not yet come to pass, but this is the new covenant. He had held up the cup, he'd poured it out and said, this is the new covenant. At that moment, it must have been a little bit confusing. I don't understand what's going on here. What what, what is exactly happening? I, I know what you just said, but how is this happening? So this is Thursday evening, remember? Now we fast forward to... Friday and all that has transpired over the last 12, 15 hours. It was not ratified until the following day on a mountain outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Notice the next phrase, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. John the Baptist had said, hadn't he, some years before, Behold, look and see the Lamb of God that takes away, not remove, not, not covers, takes away, removes the sins of the world. That is a striking statement. What do you mean? For years and years and years we've had our sins covered and John says, This is the one, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The old covenants... The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, all required ratification to be effective, as did God's new covenant. Please, as we close, Matthew 27. Back to our text. That's got to be close to the longest introduction I've ever given you. Matthew 27 and verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
Here is the question. Here is the ultimate question. Here is the question that was bothering me so much yesterday and even this morning. What was the darkness? This is what I believe the darkness was. It was the presence of God as seen in the ratification of the new covenant. This is not the absence of God. This is not the turning away of God the Father from God the Son. This is the presence of God come down in a very real way. For three hours, God visited His Son on the cross in a direct and powerful way. One person has suggested that the darkness that surrounded God was there in order to conceal his glory, which unveiled would destroy all of mankind. And we know that, don't we? Why was it thick darkness on Mount Sinai? Why was it thick darkness with Abraham? I would suggest because if God in his fullness came, no man could ever stand. It would all be over. And here I believe with all of my heart now, having studied and prayed and looked, this is not the absence but the very presence in a direct way of God the Father visiting His Son on the cross and He concealed His glory in the thick darkness. And you say, well, it's a bit far-fetched. How could that possibly be the case? Let me show you the final climactic truth here that I never knew until yesterday. Verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? At the ninth hour. Why when the darkness is dissipating? Why when the darkness is going is this cry? He's been silent for three hours, the Lord Jesus. The last thing he said was, behold your son, behold your mother some hours before. And for three long hours in the darkness and the presence of God there and the presence of God is being removed and Jesus cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is by itself a statement that begs us to ask this question, why then, at that point in time, did Jesus say that his father had forsaken him? And the suggestion that I'm making for us this morning, what I believe to be true, is that for three long hours, the presence of God in a direct sense had been with the son. And we're going to find out why after our break. Why? That is what the darkness is. Heavenly Father, thank you for the strength and the enablement to share uh, this part of the story. As we break for a few moments, refresh us. Uh, Lord, help us to stretch our legs and be ready for uh, what becomes an increasingly amazing story. Not just a story made up, a fable, but true account of what the Son of God and the interaction with the Father looked like and what it did and how it operated and what God the Father did and and all of that, oh Lord, we have so much yet to come. Strengthen us, we pray. Encourage our hearts now as we ponder these things for a few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.